The History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the Shudder app or visit Shudder.com and enter the code SHUDDERPOD to start your free two-week trial. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docu-series threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. So in some cases, Eli leads the talk itself, and in others, the deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayenga has stepped in. Today, we're going to bring you one of our most beloved genre talents of today, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright, he's a kinetic, he's a rhythmic filmmaker. He's someone who brings deceptively personal stories to movies that really play with genre and film and video games and meta-narratives. They're spectacular, they sparkle, they electrify. He started all this on a UK series called Spaced, and that led to the zombie comedy Shaun of the Dead, which led to Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and of course, the best video game movie that's not a video game movie, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Though not solely working in horror, Wright's understanding and love of the genre is so clear and so defined. Here, he tells the story of his film and horror education, with UK genre and sci-fi magazine Starburst, his thoughts on zombies past and present, and of course the making and legacy of Shaun of the Dead. Here now is Edgar Wright. Listen up, ghouls. Uh, My name is Edgar Wright. Uh, I am the co-writer and director of Shaun of the Dead and other films such as Hot Fuzz and The World's End and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World and Baby Driver. I don't know why I felt the need to do it in chronological order, but I just did. Shaun of the Dead. So first tell me a little about uh, your personal relationship with George Romero's films and uh, how that may have affected you. Um, I think I became aware of George Romero's films first through reading uh, magazines, especially the UK equivalent of Fangoria was a magazine called Starburst. This was all before I could see any of these movies. I used to look through the pages of Starburst, and I'm sure people did the same thing with Fangoria, where you'd look at the kind of grainy stills or, like, the film posters and try and imagine what the film would be like. So I grew up in a household where we didn't have a VCR, and um, if I saw any horror films at all, they were usually around at my older brother's friend's houses when I was a teenager. And so I, we used to have to rely on what was on network TV. So I felt with something like George Romero and the zombie films, I knew a lot about them before I'd even seen them, because I'd read up a lot about it. It's that funny thing of becoming obsessed with something before actually seeing the movies. And finally, I think I saw Night of the Living Dead first on late night TV with commercial breaks. You know, I think the thing about the George Romero films, uh, in the first trilogy of the zombie films, and especially Dawn of the Dead, it's it's that rare kind of, like, nightmare world which you actually wouldn't... I mean, maybe this is just me, but you wouldn't mind being in it. <laughs> I don't think I would want to be in Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead, but there's definitely something about Dawn of the Dead where it feels like a desert island fantasy. There's something about, you know, the idea of being Robinson Crusoe in a shopping mall is such a sort of genius idea. And whenever I would watch that particular one, which is my favorite of the three, 
I would want to kind of be in the movie. I thought it was such a, an interesting way of presenting like a horror film as, as more of an adventure film. I always describe Dawn of the Dead as being a great Sunday afternoon movie. Obviously it ends very badly, but it's still something where, you know, with some dystopian fantasies, you think, oh, I wouldn't mind being in that, you know. I don't want to be in, I don't want to be in the road. I don't want to be in I Am Legend, but I wouldn't mind being in Dawn of the Dead 1928. <laughs> it has some fun parts to it. They get to play on the ice rink on, the, on, the, on their own. You know, they get to sort of um, play all the arcade machines. They get to wear anything they like, and they just have to kill a few zombies that kind of stray in. Of course, the bikers ruin everything. But it was that, it was, it was that sort of obsession with those films, and because they were somewhat illicit in the UK as well, particularly Dawn of the Dead, which for a long time was not on VHS. And then when it did come out, it had been cut, and you'd hear kind of stories about longer European cuts and where can you get the extra footage. And there was always some still in Fangoria magazine of like a shot that was too bloody for the, the theatrical version. Back in those days before the internet, you know, legend would build up about things that have been cut out or different versions or are you seeing everything or trying to sort of see where the cuts had been made. So it was a film to really obsess over. And then I found somebody years later who was equally obsessed by it and that happened to be Simon Pegg. And we were working on a comedy show in the uh, mid-90s in the UK uh, before Spaced, a comedy show called Asylum. I think it was around the time that the first Resident Evil games came out. Those games did a very good job of capturing some of the spirit of the Romero films. Me and Simon, through talking about that game, started talking about George Romero and realized that we both were obsessed with that movie. So this, this then turned into an episode of Spaced where Simon Pegg's character, Tim Bisley, fights zombies in his flat. And while, after having played Resident Evil 2, for like 32 hours on end, he's now hallucinating zombies in you know, his apartment and starts kind of shooting them. And at the end of that shooting day where we were making this uh, zombie killing sequence, I just, it was one of those days that I get frequently where I, I thought, oh, I can't believe that this is my job, I'm getting paid to do this. When we caught a, a taxi that night and I said, maybe we should do a whole film like this. And then we were trying for a long time to figure out how we could do our own spin on a comedy horror that wouldn't be like American Wolf in London, that wouldn't be like Evil Dead 2, that wouldn't be like Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, AKA Dead Alive for US folks. And that, that was really how it came about, is like how can we sort of do a zombie film that's like filtered through our own perspective? And really a number of different ideas came together. One of them being I remember vividly that I'd been playing Resident Evil 3 like all night. My girlfriend at the time had gone away and I promised her I wouldn't play video games all weekend and I did exactly that. And I remember vividly playing it until the sun came up and then walking across the street to the newsagent to get some milk to make some tea. And I walked across the street and it was completely empty on a Sunday morning and the shop was the only thing that was open. And I, in that moment, I had a thought of thinking, what would it be like if zombies were here right now? And what would I do? Because we don't really have guns in the UK. How would I defend myself? What weapons do I have in the house? It's just that little thought really sort of started to inspire the sequence where Sean walks to the store and back, hungover. So then in talking to Simon about it, it was like, well, what if these guys, they're not the, they're not the SWAT team, like in Dawn of the Dead. They're not like the scientists in Day of the Dead who are trying to figure out a way to stop the crisis. They're just two guys on the couch 
who have just woken up a bit late, hungover. So it's not their job to save the world, but it, they do have to survive the day. And in that sense, the, we like this idea of our film taking place within George Romero's universe. So it kind of, the same rules of his films apply to ours. And even the idea that if our film was happening in North London, his trilogy was happening in Pittsburgh in the States. And we even use some of the same exposition of what might be happening and why. And we also had this idea that we thought that if Dawn of the Dead was Hamlet, then Shaun of the Dead was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Dead, about the bit players, like the other guys. So that was really like, uh, that's quite a lofty pitch to go into a studio and say, imagine if Dawn of the Dead is Hamlet, then Shaun of the Dead is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Dead. I don't think we ever said that in a, in a pitch meeting, but that was basically the idea. Actually, if you could Tom Stoppard. Uh, yeah, Stoppard. Got it. <laughs> of course, Tom Stoppard. Um, so, let's see. Mention a little about. Uh, obviously, you pay a few uh, tributes to Romero besides the entire film, basically in some ways, but uh, specifically about the music, for instance, at the beginning of uh, Shaun of the Dead. You know, the film is like a valentine to George Romero. It always made me bristle when people would say, oh, zombie spoof. It's like, oh, I mean, the spoof to, to my mind, just that word means that it's a send-up, that somehow it's like derisive of the subject matter, and it's not. So we would always call it a valentine because it's done with real affection because we love those movies. We're not sending them up because we think they're lame. We're, like, sharing our deep, deep love for the subject. And so, with that in mind, there are lots of references to George's movie in there, and, you know, even just the music in places. We use a part of the Goblin score from Dawn of the Dead, and even the music that's over the opening studio logos in Shaun of the Dead is one of the library DeWolf tracks that George Romero used in Dawn of the Dead. Just to show what a pedant I am, the first person that we showed it to in the States pretty much was George Romero. We wanted to show it to him because we wanted to make sure that he was okay with it and we wanted to get his blessing. And he really loved the movie and he watched it in Florida when he was on holiday. He watched it in the presence of a universal security guard, which I thought was funny was the idea that George Romero himself might pirate the movie. If he did, he would be entitled to some of the profits because we couldn't have done it without him. But I remember when we were talking about it, he called me and Simon that night to say how much he loved it. And one thing he said, this just shows what a total geek I am, and I should have just like stopped correcting him. He said, he goes, oh, yes, I loved it. Right from where you had Goblin over the studio logo. And I was like, well, that's actually a DeWolf track, if you remember. And he goes, right, right, right. <laughs> so I don't know why I'm trying to sort of out-geek George Romero. R.I.P. But he was, I mean, but his blessing meant everything to us. Everything after that was a bonus. The fact that George liked it, you know, because obviously, like, his movies, Night of the Living Dead is probably one of the most influential movies of all time. I mean, all, all three of them. Particularly the first two, I think, sort of, like, incredibly influential. And, and he's not somebody that's always profited from that. So here we are making a movie that, like, with a, like, a pun on his title. So I wanted to make sure that he liked it, and he really did. And then the upshot of that was that the first time that we actually met him was when me and Simon played zombies in his Land of the Dead uh, in 2005. So we actually got to meet him on location on a night shoot, fittingly enough. And he was wearing... Um, we'd made him a Shaun of the Dead badge to say thank you for giving us a good review. He basically had Sean's badge, but with George written on it. So it was a crazy thing to meet George Romero, and he's wearing, like, a badge for 4E Electric, named after Ken 4E in Dawn of the Dead, the 4E Electric manager, George. So it was amazing. It was just, um, it was one of the, I always remember the moment where George Romero called us in London to say how much he liked the film. Is like the moment where the world got smaller forever. 
I think this is one of the like life-changing moments in my career, really. Ramirez films also, he's known as kind of a political filmmaker as well. So all those films have, you know, say things about the state of America at the time. When I was interviewing Max Brooks throughout uh, World War Z, he actually said that Shaun of the Dead, is, he said, if you want to know the state of Britain at the time it was made, look at Shaun of the Dead. Do you agree with that assessment? Was that on your mind at all? Yeah, I think the great thing about zombies is they are like a catch-all metaphor for what's the sort of the world's ills. And I think George Romero doesn't really get enough credit as a satirist as well as a horror filmmaker. And so, you know, Dawn of the Dead being the most kind of like obvious and, and entertaining one in terms of a real savage statement about the state of consumerism in the late 70s and the idea that the mindless hordes flock to the big fancy shopping mall. Uh, it was very pointed and very funny and, uh, and a great image. And I guess with Shaun of the Dead, our sort of idea was to talk about like living in the city in the, in the new millennium and how people are kind of wrapped up in their own little worlds and are in their bubble. And that was really just through, I mean, London is, is very much a place like that where you can, you know, go through an entire day without speaking to anybody even as you're around everybody. We like this idea that like sort of a showing, at the start of the movie, Sean is part of like the mob and then, you know, really his like ascent into being like a man is to sort of like break free of the hordes and, and actually do the right thing. But it was, um, you know, a lot of those kind of like shots at the start of the movie to show sort of people just like sheeple, as they say, just shambling along, sort of following the person in front of them. And most of the movies that me and Simon have done have some theme about the individual versus the collective. And that's a big theme in a lot of horror films, obviously, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, Dawn of the Dead. You know, and Shaun of the Dead is definitely the state of, like, London 2004. You also get the feeling that Sean's ex-girlfriend is off having an identical but way more kick-ass adventure than Sean is having, right? Yeah, that was the idea. Well, we like the idea that, like, in every zombie movie, it's like, what is that thing that there's eight million stories in the naked city? It was like that idea is that, like, this is a zombie apocalypse, so essentially there are, like, sort of amazing stories happening all over. And the, the joke with Yvonne, played by Jessica Hines, is that maybe she's living a more exciting version of the story. And, you know, she's decided to go on a sort of crusade to find sort of like the sort of uh, the safe house. But, you know, they've decided to go back to the pub. So they're going backwards where she's forging forwards. And of course, she comes to save the day at the end. So the idea is that Yvonne actually had the right idea. I mean, with Sean, they basically he gets a lot of people killed with his dumb idea. But it's the thought that counts. At least he tried. He was trying to do the right thing. Uh, his plan was, uh, was not a great one and had many casualties, but at least he tried. A for effort. <laughs> and I'll, I've mentioned this scene to several people I've interviewed, but uh, my favorite is when they run into the parallel universe versions of their same group, so his ex-girlfriend's leaving the group that's the mirror image of Sean's group. So. Yeah, we called that scene, the scene where they run into their, like, literally other halves, we called it, like, the doppelgang. So it was like, oh, here comes, here's the doppelgang. And we tried to cast, like, every other person in that gang with, like, the sort of the equivalent actor. So it's especially funny now to see, like, you've got Simon Pegg on one side, but Martin Freeman, like, later to be a huge star in his own right, on the other side playing, like, the other Sean with one line going, hi. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a sequence that was... But that was really also making a comment on the idea that, um, you know, Sean and Ed and Liz are just bit players in this bigger story. 
and maybe there's a more exciting film around the corner, but we don't have the budget to tell that one. We're going to tell this story. What's also interesting about it, too, is that it works just fine as a straight-up zombie movie. I mean, it's actually a zombie movie with, you know, laughs and tears and uh, terrific amounts of violence. So. Yeah, it was always important to us that the film worked as a zombie film as well as being a comedy. It is a comedy, and it's even a romantic comedy or a buddy comedy, but it still like works as a zombie film, and things are going to get dark and bleak in the final segment. And I think that was something about the film that surprised people, is especially when it gets into the scenes with Sean's mother and her dying, it goes a lot bleaker and more serious than you might expect. But that was something that me and Simon were very intent on doing in the movie, and some people thought that it was a mistake to get that dark and it should be kept lighter, and we didn't really want to do that, because we felt that was betraying the genre. We wanted to stay true to the spirit of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and have characters who make mistakes and sort of tough decisions to be made. To, to us, that was like, you know, these are key elements of a zombie film, is that at some point you're going to have to shoot your loved one. Around the same time, when 28 Days Later come out, it was right around the same period, right, Sean? It was just before. Yeah, 28 Days Later came out, I think, in 2003, or maybe 2002. But I do remember that um, I'd heard... Me and Simon were writing Shaun of the Dead in 2001. It was just after we'd finished the second series of Spaced. And I remember getting a call from Simon... Because when we thought of the idea of Shaun of the Dead, one of the inspirations for it is because there hadn't been a zombie film for like 15 years. And we always had this theory that like John Landis's uh, video for Thriller had sort of killed off zombies for the second half of the 80s and early 90s. And then it was around like the late 90s when Resident Evil came out, the game, so people started to take an interest in the genre again. And then, so there was the film of that game, and then there was 28 Days Later. But I remember, I didn't know about 28 Days Later until Simon Pegg gave me a call, and he said, hey, have you heard that Danny Boyle's doing a zombie film written by Alex Garland? And I was like, what? And he goes, oh, it is set in London. I was so furious, because I thought that we, we had already come up with, maybe by this point we'd even written the first draft, and we are in the process of writing it. I just couldn't believe that like another British filmmaker was making a British zombie film. So I was furious at the time. Then I saw the movie, and two things is that I realized it was a very different movie, not just because the zombies were like non-traditional, they were like running zombies, like in you know Nightmare City rather than Night of the Living Dead. But also, as it turned out, I feel like 28 Days Later kind of teed up our movie. I think if 28 Days Later had not come out, Shaun of the Dead would not have done as well because I think we actually benefited from that film coming out 18 months before us and putting sort of those films back in the consciousness and then we kind of like came in and um, so I, I, at the time when I first heard about it <laughs> I was so angry and so jealous and then I realised in retrospect it actually was a huge help to us and I've since become friends with like Daddy Boyle and Alex Garland and so there's no love lost there at all but so I'd like to thank them for teeing up our movie also in the UK we gross more money so it's all good <laughs> What did you think of that picture? Well, first of all, the controversial fast zombies. Are you a fast zombie or a slow zombie person? I'm not really a fast zombie guy. I think it works. I mean, it depends. It depends if you call them zombies. I think the idea of people running, I don't really like running zombies per se. Like in Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, where they're running zombies, 
if I can make a criticism of running zombies, it's this. is that running zombies generally, there's kind of like a fitness level. If you look at the zombies in 28 Days Later, they're nearly always like sort of fit, you know, like they're in like a sneakers commercial. <laughs> so what you lose when you... When you increase the speed, the people that lose out are the old zombies and the overweight zombies and the little kid zombies. And I would rather have a more inclusive range of zombies. So to me, like in Dawn of the Dead, the fact that also the other thing that's key to me is in George Romero's film and the idea of slow zombies. The slow zombies to me is like a major part of the appeal of that genre. Because to me, like slow zombies is like trying to outrun lava. And there's this nightmarish quality. You know when you're in a, uh, having a nightmare and there's a monster, that you, it might be slow, but you cannot escape it. And that's what the zombie is. Is even if like it will never stop walking and it's always coming to get you. And even if you outrun one of them, you're gonna run into another one. You cannot escape, even though they're slow. And when they're en masse, it's even more formidable. So there's something about their lack of speed, to me, makes it a lot more scary and more nightmarish. So for that reason, I was never crazy about the fast zombie. I, I, I prefer it in 28 Days Later, because they never use the Z word, and they're called the infected, it's something different. And it's almost like a virus, you know, where they're still alive, not necessarily dead. But I'm definitely, as evidenced by my movie, I'm a car-carrying, slow zombie fan. Although, uh, one of the few funny things in Train to Busan is uh, where somebody says, don't use the word zombie, and then they have the cell phone and it's trending, zombie. <laughs> everybody everybody in the uh, country is... I do, I do like Train to Busan. Yeah. That's actually my favorite zombie film of the last, like, 10 years. I did have a thing after Shaun of the Dead, I sort of, I had my fill of zombie movies because I'd made one. It was like being a fan of chocolate cake and then baking a chocolate cake and then never wanting to have another chocolate cake again. And for a long time, there was a lot of zombie films that I didn't see uh, just because I, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd been through it. I'd sort of like exercise myself with my... And uh, Train to Busan is one of the first zombie films that I, you know, the last kind of decade that I truly loved. And they have, you know, fast zombies, so I will um, give them a pass. In that film, and actually all horror films, but particularly the zombie films, a lot of it seems to depend on you know, a few really searing, kind of memorable images or sequences. So, for instance, when you think of that, what what are the um, what are the images that leap to mind? I'd say like the first image that I think of when I think of uh, zombies is in Dawn of the Dead, is the zombies on the ice rink. It's such a sort of beautiful shot, and it's kind of scary and um, picturesque at the same time. And there's something beautiful about seeing zombies walking on an ice rink, which they, you know, without the skates, they're just walking on something which normally people would be skating on, en masse, and just like one of those, like, wide shots. It looks like, uh, what's that artist who does, um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the artist. He does, like, sort of um, matchstick man. Ah, uh, it'll come back to me. Lowry? No. I might have to come back to that. But uh, that, that's, that's an image uh, that really sort of sticks with me. In Night of the Living Dead, I think it's um, Johnny coming back into the house right at the very end. 
because there's this great thing. It sort of breaks out of the logic of it, but he seems to recognize Barbara. And when sort of um, Johnny comes back into the into the room, like her brother who died in the opening sequence, he has the hint of a grin on his face. And it's something that doesn't really work within the zombie logic because in, in theory they wouldn't recognize their loved ones. But it's chilling. And uh, it's always such a great moment. I saw that with an audience at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery last year. And when he comes back and you see that little, tiny little grin on his face, or that, you know, that spark of recognition, it's, that's really chilling. A Day of the Dead, I think um, Bub is one of the greatest zombies of all time, portrayed by Howard Sherman. And once he learns to use a gun again and he like shoots um, Sergeant Rhodes or Captain Rhodes and uh, causes him to get ripped apart and then he does his little salute, like he remembers the traces of his former life. That's another like, really key moment. I mean, they're full of those like iconic shots. What two are the most iconic shots in Shot of the Dead? Oh, I mean, in terms of the shots that people talk to me about, it would always be the shot where Sean walks to the, the shops and back on the Sunday morning, which was actually the first shot that we shot of the entire movie. And then I guess the, the Queen sequence, you know, it's like fighting the kind of, uh, the fighting the zombie, you know, sort of set to Don't Stop Me Now by Queen, hitting it with the pull cues in time, with the sort of steady cam whirling around. That's the sort of a shot that always sticks with me. I, uh, I think also, I think, I always think of the performances of some of the zombies. Nicola Cunningham, who plays Mary, like in the garden, completely nailed it. It's exactly that, that thing that's in some of those movies, is there's something extremely creepy about that person who's just standing with her back to camera, like in the garden, and they're just observing. And then when she turns around, there's clearly something wrong with her. But her performance is like, in those scenes, it just makes the movie. Like, the casting of those people who play the zombies is so crucial. Because you've seen a million bad, like, zombie films with terrible extras or terrible people playing zombies that are, like, sort of too broad or, like, sort of... But when you get somebody who's really great at it, it becomes iconic, even if you don't know the actress's name. But it's Nicola Cunningham, and she's fantastic and playing Mary. So, like, her show where she's got her denim jacket on and she's, like, standing with her back to camera, and then she starts slowly turning around. It's just brilliant. She has a melancholy about her. Too. I know she's got sad eyes. Absolutely, it's it's sad because she's kind of pretty, but there's something sad in her eyes, and then she attacks. <laughs> and it's also it makes me laugh whenever I watch it. Is that uh, Simon Pegg's reaction as she's walking towards him? She goes, "I've just I've just come out of a relationship." Actually, <laughs> he, he thinks it's like the weirdest come on of all time. And we, yeah, we mentioned a little about this idea of zombies as a metaphor for whatever. I mean, are they an all-purpose metaphor at this point? Well, I, if I have a problem with some contemporary horror films, and this isn't specifically about remakes because a lot of the 70s and 80s remakes are some of my favorite horror films of all time. Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, John Carpenter's The Thing, Dave Cronenberg's The Fly. I think the thing with like more, some more recent like films is that they're not really about anything. I feel there's a lot of like zombie films where I don't feel like they're really about anything. Whereas I think my favorite ones, or, or other films of that ilk, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is obviously an example, Night of the Living Dead, when they actually sort of a snapshot of the times, they're much more memorable to me. And sometimes I think sort of more recent ones don't really seem to be about anything. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, the zombie and the vampire and the body snatcher, it's always a great metaphor. And, and some of, you know, for, for all sort of society's ills and fears, sometimes you get a perfect movie like Invasion of the Body Snatcher, the Don Siegel one, where the metaphor is so strong that the left and the right can claim it as their own. The greatest thing about that movie is like the sort of the right can say, oh, it's the commies. It's the, it's the commies coming to get us. It's the socialists. Where the left is saying, oh, no, it's the McCarthyites <laughs> coming to kind of like coming to get us. So it's that, that's an amazing thing is where a film where you could read into it from different sides of the political spectrum. And do films like, a, you know, Last Man on Earth, you know, the Vincent Price version of I Am Legend or whatever, is, is, that, is that in some ways like a fantasy, you know, wish fulfillment? You mentioned like wanting to live in the world of Dawn of the Dead. And... Strangely enough, I've never seen The Last Man on Earth. That's one of the few ones that like I, in the UK at least, rarely got shown. I did see Amiga Man, which is obviously like a later version of the same thing. Whilst I don't like the makeup of the baddies in that movie, <laughs> there are... The first third of it has some elements of it that are like total wish fulfillment. Charlton Heston like sort of like bombing around in his convertible, sitting in the cinema watching Woodstock every night. Uh, there are moments in the opening sequence of that that are very sort of um, strong to me. I mean, there, there are other like um, movies of that ilk that... I remember uh, there's that Australian movie, The Quiet Earth, by Jeff Murphy, which was a great Last Man on Earth scenario. And also, I also like this movie by Don McKellar called Last Night, a Canadian movie from, like, I think 1999, that's about the lead-up that on New Year's Eve 1999, the world is going to end, and everybody knows it, and different people are planning for the end of days in different ways. I think that's a really strong movie. So there are lots of films that are, are like, this you know, interesting kind of dystopia that sort of... There are, like, lots of fun ones like that as well, like, um, you know, Night of the Comet is, like, a pretty fun movie in that respect, in terms of, like, a, a, I mean, even I would hasten to say, I don't think I would last very long, but I'd like to visit um, the Mad Max, um, like, universe. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I would last very long at all, but at least in parts of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, it looks like it could be fun. <laughs> At least kind of getting to kind of, um, you know, beef up your interceptor. I think current history is actually a vast unconscious attempt to make that real. Yes. I think Fury Road is, is um, the, only, the only Oscar it didn't get nominated for was Best Documentary. Yeah. Best Documentary Feature, which it could have been nominated for. Of course, John Carpenter always said They Live was a documentary as well, right? So. Yeah, I mean, They Live, I think, is another film that seems ahead of its time. I think that's a film that, like, I think when it came out didn't make the impact on first release, but it's um, frequently um, referred to, and even in the last election, you saw lots of people using imagery from They Live. So it's interesting how some of those things are, like, political kind of sci-fi or horror are, like, ahead of their time. Speaking of Carpenter, let's talk about John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, I mean, John Carpenter is, uh, is absolutely one of my favorite horror filmmakers because I like his, um, I think his films are a lot classier than people give them credit for, especially for a low-budget, um, well, take Halloween as an example, or Assault on Precinct 13, or The Fog. They're extraordinarily well-made for low-budget films. And they fly in the face of the conventional wisdom that horror films are somehow trashy because they're very, like, sort of um, classically made movies. And then I think, you know, it, a lot of his films are building up to The Thing, which at the time was, like, his biggest budget movie. 
I just like the way that he directs. I like his use of the frame, use of the wide angle frame. He actually respects the audience's attention span and, um, you know, things build off to sort of really satisfying payoffs. His shocks are interesting because he actually bothers to kind of really ramp up the tension. Like, it's interesting in, say, like The Thing, for a, a film that has some of the best monster effects of all time, even by today's standards, still the most tense scene revolves around them giving a blood test because you haven't seen, like, a massive um, shape-shifting monster in your lifetime, but everybody's cut their thumb. Everybody knows what that feels like. And so it's amazing watching that with an audience, is that all of the kind of the major set pieces are extraordinary, but the scene that gets the most reaction is like, you know, somebody kind of like cutting like a thumb and drawing blood. I think that in a lot of things, you get that in a lot of shocks that, um, in like, um, I always think that in The Evil Dead, The Evil Dead is like sort of complete phantasmagoria, and yet the biggest reaction that you get in that movie is when a sharpened pencil goes into somebody's ankle, because you know what that feels like. It's the same thing with, like, anything to do with, like, you know, anything to do with paper cuts or, like, sort of just anything that, like, I think sometimes that's the genius of... And, and the thing does that brilliantly where it sort of... It also uses that whole section with the, the blood test as a way of a distraction technique. And, in fact, it climaxes in such a great shock where they're holding the Petri dish and it's a fake hand because in the Petri dish, Rob Bottin's monster effect is going to come shooting out of it. So it wasn't until I watched it for the third time that I realized, oh, this is like a fake hand that he's holding. And the, it's a fake hand because a monster is going to go out of the Petri dish. I love the way the Carpenter directs, and I think there's definitely a feeling where the thing is his masterpiece. And I know the failure of the movie at the time is something that was a major disappointment to him. You know, the thing is, is when you're a horror fan, even at the time, I, th I saw The Thing on TV probably in 1985 when I was 11, when it was first on network TV in the UK. I had no idea whether it was a box office flop or not. That didn't matter. It's like, I, I'm just taking the movie on its own terms. And I thought it was, like, extraordinary. I was so scared watching The Thing on TV with my brother that we started changing channels in the middle of the goriest parts of the set pieces. So my first memory of watching The Thing is right in the middle of, say, the operating table scene was flicking channels onto the snooker on, like, the other channel. And then after about 30 seconds, flicking back to see where it was. He's an extraordinary filmmaker, and, and a film that I return to a lot is Halloween. It's one of my favorite horror films of all time, just because the simplicity of the setup, how perfectly it works as a sort of engine of suspense, and also... And this is rare in a lot of horror films, actually like a likable lead, like somebody that you don't want to get uh, killed. You know, in Friday the 13th, you want most of those actors to die. <laughs> you don't want Jamie Lee Curtis to die. You want Jamie Lee Curtis to survive. You know, you want PJ Souls and, um, uh, to survive as well. They're all like likable actors. I think that's a movie that, like, especially for somebody's like, third movie, it really is a masterclass of how to make a low-budget film. I watch it, you know, once a year, that movie, on Halloween. Did you see uh, Prom Night? I saw Prom Night uh, after the fact. That, Prom Night would have been one of those movies where um, I would, uh, like, obsess about the poster and have read the synopsis and read about it in, like, Starburst and the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film and then finally got to watch it years later, having ruined all the twists for myself. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a gnarly movie. The, um, I get actually mixed up sometimes with Prom Night and Terror Train. Prom Night, as I recall, has... Um, is that the one that has, um, like, a disco scene in it and, like, a, a severed head on the, on the disco floor? 
Or is that Terra Train? <laughs> they both have. I think so. I, think so. I mean, it's funny, like, not a lot of the slasher films really speak to me. I was never really that, you know, things like Friday the 13th and a lot of the kind of post Halloween slashers were not really my thing, particularly. Halloween really spoke to me because there's something Baroque about it. And there's something classy about it. Just the music, even just the sort of the legend itself. Like Michael Myers, I think, to me, is far scarier than Jason Voorhees or, or Freddy Krueger even. Because I think you know a version of like Michael Myers and there's something about that kid who kind of cracked and that kid who went away or somebody that sort of is like no longer at home anymore and there was a problem in that family or this horrible thing happened. All of the kind of stories, you know, it has a sort of Stephen King quality to it as well about the stories of something, urban myths that are like secondhand tales. You can imagine if you lived in the, the, the town next to Haddonfield, it'd be like, oh, did you hear about the story of Michael Myers and he killed his sister? So it has a real simplicity that I think it taps into something that's very real. Jason Voorhees is um, I don't really understand the timeline of his, like, um, death and rebirth. I don't understand how in the first one he's like an 11-year-old who jumps out of the lake, and in the second one he's built like a WCW wrestler. I don't understand what happened in between film one and two where he suddenly got all jacked. Uh, I love the, I like the, I like the mask, and I like some of the kills in the Friday the 13th movies, but they're not, uh, I was always Michael Myers every time. Michael Myers over Jason Avery. Uh, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, like those movies, especially like one and three and seven, they have some amazing moments in them. And it's such a brilliant premise and like sort of frequently amazing imagery and such a great idea. And uh, so those movies I would uh, have a lot of time for, even if they were inconsistent in their quality. But, you know, I watched, actually, the day the Wes Craven died, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street again, and I was really taken with what a brilliantly, like, efficient film it is. It really moves. It's, like, 92 minutes long. It's, like, endlessly inventive. You know, you realize when you look at it again is that they had no money to make that movie, and it looks great, and it's surprising. You know, I think that was one of the sort of, after, like, a run of, in the sort of 80s, early 80s into the mid-80s, where sort of slasher movies were just running through every national holiday, like, somebody finally come up with the new idea. Or what if this killer is in your dreams? That's a great idea. And then the next big thing in that genre would be uh, Scream. Yeah, I, uh, I really liked Scream when it came out. And um, you know, Wes Craven has been responsible for, you know, several key horror films, which is rare for, for, rare for a horror filmmaker to have that long a career, which Wes Craven did, and also come up with at least four, you know, movies. Well, Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream... I maybe like miss it. Well, actually, my favorite one is The People Under the Stairs, which isn't one of his biggest films, but that's my favorite one. And that's talk about a metaphorical horror film. The People Under the Stairs, I think, is Wes Craven's finest hour, finest hour and a half. Scream, though, when that came out, is I was so happy for him for this, you know, genre filmmaker from the 70s and 80s to come back in the mid-90s with a complete word-of-mouth smash. And for it to be genuinely... I saw that opening night in the UK, and the audience was having a blast. And even though like slasher films are not my it's not my favorite genre, I really enjoyed that movie. And I think sort of at the time it was um, 
you know, and it was also daring in a way that I'm not sure that a studio today would make that same movie, not with the veracity of the horror. Like the opening sequence is like properly scary. And I think in a way, I mean, I do like the Scream films and I like the first Scream, but it doesn't really get better than that first five minutes. It's like that's the sort of tour de force sequence and kind of, you know, like rightly a classic scene in horror movies. Well, it does what a lot of more successful films seem to do, which is kind of set the bar really, really high, basically, with like a really strong, incredibly, you know, upsetting sequence. And then the rest of the movie, everybody is just waiting for something that horrible to happen again. You do get that in a lot of horror films where the opening sequence is really strong. Well, not even, even not even the opening, but oh. actually maybe just like just for instance, the, you you build up to the shower scene and everything after the shower scene in Psycho is you know everybody's at the edge of their seat even if it never gets topped. Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of films. You know, Jaws does that. Like when you've had kind of like a, a young boy and his dog killed in the first 20 minutes, like, all better off, then you're on the edge of your seat because it's like, oh, this film will go anywhere. Like, they just killed a kid in Jaws, a PG. <laughs> so anything could happen in this movie. I, there are a lot of films that have really strong openings like that. Another film that has, like, an opening which, you know, the rest of the film can't quite top it, but it's still it is one of my favourite horror films is Suspiria. The first, like, ten minutes of Suspiria is really unsettling, and you don't really know the logic of the universe we're in. The sets are kind of, like, fantastical and amazing, so it's, like, sort of incredible eye candy, incredible music, and also the shocks are so extravagant and um, gory and unsettling. And the rest of the film is equally, is really great. It can't ever quite top that kind of, like, sort of opening set piece, but it doesn't have to. You're absolutely right. You're unsettled for the rest of it, and you're then kind of like the the director just has you wrapped. And you mentioned Jaws, which is something I wanted to talk about with you. If you could tell me a little about, particularly as a director, when you look at Jaws now, why is that basically a masterful, <laughs> a masterful horror film? Well, the interesting thing about Jaws is obviously is that there's an element where Spielberg was forced into really creative ways of showing suspense because his major special effect didn't work. I'm sure he would agree that if the mechanical shark had worked a bit better, you might have seen the shark more and maybe it would be a lesser film. The fact is he had to really use every trick in the book to make the film work, and he does so brilliantly. So that means the shark doesn't actually have that much screen time, and then you have things that just other ways of showing what's happening and showing the unease. The point of view shot, you know, with John Williams' score, you know, just seeing the rea- um, playing an entire scene on the reaction of the, the woman being pulled under and never seeing what's happening underneath shooting something extremely gory um, of like a boy being eaten by a shark on a long lens from Roy Scheider's point of view, you know, and then seeing that kind of that amazing dolly zoom as his reaction, like showing the path of the shark from the yellow barrels of how, how they're tracking it. You know, what's amazing about that film is that there's an element of like Spielberg's r- real mastery of the form and a classic suspense film is coming out of him ha- trying to fix something that's broken. Is like, my movie doesn't work because my effect doesn't work. What the hell am I going to do? And he, all of his B ideas are like way more suspenseful than probably what the A ideas were, you know? I mean, you, that's why Jaws has not been remade to this day, is people don't really want to see a CGI shark. 
You don't need to see more shark. And you've seen other shark movies since where there's CGI sharks, and you're like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I've already seen Jaws. It's better to see 15% like sort of shark than 100% shark. Are you a practical effects person versus a CGI person? Absolutely. I think I love practical effects. And I think today, I mean, you know, there's still practical effects in film that look extraordinary. I still think the makeup work in American Wealth in London or The Thing looks great and has more, it's just more tactile. The more contemporary movies, I say contemporary, I'm going to talk about Jurassic Park, which is from 1983. But Jurassic Park is a good example of using CGI and practical effects. You know, the shots that you really remember from that movie, some of those are Stan Winston animatronics. Like the big T-Rex eye that comes down is an animatronic effect, it's not a CG effect. Somebody who uses like CG and makeup effects brilliantly is like Guillermo del Toro. Pan's Labyrinth is like a brilliant use of makeup, animatronics and CG to create something that you know it's a man in a suit, but it can't quite be in a man in a suit because how are his legs that thin? And so it's just the really sort of clever combination of the two things. So I'm not like, a, I'm not against kind of CGI, but the idea of like a CGI werewolf, it doesn't excite me in the same way that like an amazing bit of makeup does. The other problem with CGI is it kind of dates as well. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of something in a movie where I've seen films like Lord of the Rings or Planet of the Apes where a CGI creation has maybe believed the actor's performances. I'm trying to think of something recently where there's been a scene where I've really been scared by a monster that's CG. Oh, I can tell one. There's one in Annihilation where there's a bear creature in that movie, which is like, I presume it's a CGI effect, but it looks really real and it's really scary. But there are a lot of films where I think, you know, when you get into kind of like CGI werewolves and CGI vampires, I start to tune out because it doesn't scare me as much. I think, you know, you can see that in the remake of The Wolfman is that a lot of Rick Baker's amazing makeup work is then sort of superseded by sort of CGI effects. And I'm like, oh, stick with the Rick Baker stuff. That's more interesting to me. Speaking of werewolves, talk about the howling. Where that stands in the pantheon of werewolf movies for you? Joe Dante and John Landis were both filmmakers that meant a lot to me when I was, like, growing up. I'd seen Gremlins I'd seen at the age of 10, and that had really stayed with me as a gloriously subversive kids' movie. Probably one of the first horror films I ever saw was American Wealth in London, which is another film I'd been obsessed by the making of it. I had this Starburst magazine with a famously bloody cover that uh, that had it all about the, the film and all the makeup effects. So it's like, oh, my God, I have to see this film. And I didn't see it until I was 10 when it was on TV for the first time. My parents had let me and my brother stay up to watch it. And then during the sequence where Rick Baker's Nazi demons storm into David Norton's house and slit his throat, uh, which is a terrifying sequence even to this day, my parents said, OK, that's enough, bed. So I was sent to bed, which I think is a bad policy as a parent because it meant that I didn't see the end of the film, so I had no catharsis of how it would end, and I had terrible, terrible nightmares. I mean, The, the Howling by Joe Dante is, is another really fun film, and I think, you know, both of them are, were around the same time where, like, American Wealth in London had Rick Baker's effects, and The Howling had Rob Bottin, Rick Baker's protege, was doing the effects. So there's some crossover that they came out in the same year, and they had some of the same effects. And I like the fact that the I, I, I like a lot of the howling and the you know I like the kind of standing werewolves 
I think they're, they're some of those kind of effects that are really impressive. And the overall tone of the howling, I think, is, is interesting because it's kind of funny in places, but there's some creepy scenes. The opening of the howling in that sex shop is a very unsettling scene with D. Wallace Stone and this uh, mysterious killer that they're trying to track down. American Wealth in London, on the, uh, you know, is, is a film I could, like, recite all of the movie. I've seen it so many times. It, to me, is, like, one of those, like, rare movies where, like, sort of, um, there's a particular kind of alchemy that nobody can really recapture in exactly the same way. Not even John Landis. I think he, he would probably say the same thing, as it's something where that movie was just kind of, like, came at a particular time where he was coming off a run of big box office hits. He had enough muscle to get, like, a major budget for American Werewolf in London. It's a brilliantly lavish movie on every level. The makeup effects is groundbreaking. It has this amazing, like, pop music score, which was kind of, I think, hugely influential, like, the way of, like, using pop music as counter-scoring in that movie. And just as a British guy, like, the location work in American Wealth in London is extraordinary. And as somebody who's shot in London since, I can tell you that what they do in that movie would be difficult by today's standards, let alone in 1981. A major crash sequence in Piccadilly Circus. The movie is beautifully shot, brilliantly, like, performed. Everything about it I love. That, to me, is, like, is one of my favorite movies of all time horror movie or otherwise. It's just like something about the tone of that movie and also and a big influence on Shaun of the Dead in terms of like, it's kind of funny, it's sweet, and then it's really scary. And then it's kind of bleak. And then it has like a sort of a, a terribly sad ending like most Wolfman movies. And it's funny, sometimes I've seen people, I think Leonard Morton's review of American Wealth in London calls it like dynamite, marred only by an abrupt ending. And I'm like, ah. Oh. The ending is genius, though. It's like, as a kid, like, just the fact that it ended so abruptly with um, cutting to, like, the Marcells doing Blue Moon is one of my favourite cuts to credits ever. The werewolf as a, as a creature is not one that, in itself, is particularly kind of, like, of interest to me, like some of the movies about werewolves, but The Howling and An American Wealth in London are really influential movies in the early 80s of, I think... They prefaced a lot of what the 90s would become of, like, ways of, like, doing horror movies in air quotes. And they do it a lot better in terms of they're kind of funny and it's arch, but they're scary when they need to be. It's not like a, a goof where you don't care. They're genuinely scary, but they have this playfulness. And I think that's because both John Landis and Joe Dante are both kind of, like, little pop culture geniuses who've kind of grown up watching B-movies on TV I mean, in the days before VCRs, they've just remembered all these movies. <laughs> you know, they've memorized all these movies from watching them on late night TV. And then when they get to make a movie, it's just like, Rah! it's like it all comes kind of flooding out. And they, they, you know, really like the three directors that were the biggest influence on me around that time were John Carpenter, John Landis, Joe Dante. Those are the people that I wanted to be. I mean, people like Spielberg and George Lucas, I was also a big fan of, but that was almost like the big time. And but I focused focus on these John Carpenter, Joe Dante, and John Landis movies because I still could understand how they were made, and I wanted to know how these ideas came about. I always think when you do comedy horror like John and Joe do, it's just like you're making very specific. It's like mixing ice cream flavors together. You know, it's just something that's like no, no two comedy horrors are exactly the same. Even when you try and rip something, tries to rip something else off, it always like, has a slightly different flavor. Because when you mix two genres together, you never come out with exactly the same result. And so you do get these films that are like utterly unique and like are not really like anything else. 
Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix and Evelyn Brochu as Delphine. Season two picks up where season one left off, with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, will be available wherever you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe so you won't miss when new episodes drop. Or visit realm.fm for more information. David Cronenberg's The Brood. I think it's one of my favorite films of his, and I think of his early work. When I say early, it's like pre-Videodrome. It's my favorite by far. And it's interesting because I think it's a, it's another film that's like about something. Like all, of, I mean, all of Cronenberg's movies. You know, I wish in a way. I know he probably never will, but I, I wish he'd make one final return to the horror genre because I think he's one of our finest horror filmmakers. And I think also he did a great job in making horror respectable in a way because they're very intelligent and they're also they're about interesting issues. And the thing with The Brood is that he calls it his horror version of Kramer versus Kramer because he was going through like a bitter custody dispute at the time and The Brood is his way of um, <laughs> dealing with it. <laughs> Funny enough, I actually did a screening of it in, in Canada when I was making Scott Pilgrim, I was shooting in Toronto and I, I took over this rep cinema, The Bloor, and I did a double bill of uh, Canadian genre films. And The Brood was one of them. And I was trying to get David Cronenberg to come down and talk about it. And he very politely, he said, he goes, I, I, I can't come down and talk about the movie. I haven't seen it since it first came out. It's too raw for me. So that's an interesting thing, you know, because I think sort of a lot of people, you know, the best movies of this ilk are personal even something like Shaun of the Dead, which wouldn't seem like it's a personal film, it is a personal film. You know, The Brood is clearly like a very personal film, and he's managed to take something that's a real sort of problem for him in his real life and uh, make a fantastical horror version of it. I think that movie is um, like a lot of a lot of films have an idea of one of your like fears or anxieties being made flesh or like something you know, negative about yourself being made flesh. And in that movie, they actually do it. That's what the movie is about. People are so angry that some people can develop physical welts through their anger, and one woman can actually develop extra beings. She is so angry. It's such a great premise, and it's a terrifying visual. You know, seeing the little brood walking down the side of a freeway with their little parkers on, is terrifying. It's got so many images in that movie that are kind of verboten. Kids and horror together is always something that's very um, unsettling to watch. And you get that sequence towards the end where the daughter is being attacked by the brood. So to have like one child actor being kind of attacked by these other grotesque child actors is like a terrifying image. It really is like the stuff of nightmares. David Cronenberg has always done such an amazing job of making 
nightmares flesh and not in a way that's obvious they're not through dream sequences this is something that's really happening and i think he um obviously because he went went on to have a career as a you know a respectable director of oscar nominated dramas but we should never forget that he's one of the greatest horror filmmakers of all time Brood also has a scene that i could not get over seeing that i'd forgotten was the school teacher oh. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it, that, that's the thing I think sort of what's interesting about horror is like a, a film like The Brood, which is from 1979, it doesn't have state-of-the-art effects. You know, the only things that even vaguely date it is some of the makeup effects a little bit, but not much. But any sort of themes of, of scenes which are, are just, you know, a scene like where the school teacher is murdered by the brood in front of the kids is so deeply distressing in 1979 and in 2018. You know, really, it's about like sort of it's it's the thematic nature of of horror, which makes it resonate. It's not about production values. It's about what the film is about and what it's showing you, especially in this day and age where like a lot of older films, you know, a lot of 50s monster movies and stuff and, you know, are like dated. And if you show them to a modern audience, it would probably be a bit depressing because people would laugh at them. But you show the brood to like an audience today, that's still like a tough scene to watch. And it's almost, you know, that to me is like a measure of how great horror films are is that through time they could still like terrify a modern audience. And that, that is a great example of that sequence. And I think it's because it's something where it's just too much for people. It's too sensitive a like a subject. It's a sensitive location. Like the safety of our kids is something that's on everybody's minds. So to have a scene like that where like, you know, a guardian is like killed in front of the kids by these monsters is terrifying one of the most like, terrifying scenes in cinema and i'm sure that's a scene where a lot of critics wrote that film off on the basis of that scene alone it's like no you've crossed the line here so many um amazing uh scenes in movies are, are scenes that have gone too far in 1960 i'm sure people regarded the shower scene in psycho as having gone too far Alfred hitchcock's gone too far this time but it's indelible. It's they're indelible images, and they're like forever, like sort of in your brain. And like people have bad dreams thinking about those movies. The films have come from like horrible anxiety dreams themselves. You know, a lot of horror filmmakers are trying to sort of put their anxieties onto the screen. And Cronenberg has always done that brilliantly and just indelibly. Well, Hitchcock and Cronenberg both seem like great believers in psychoanalysis, certainly. A lot of horror films, I think, are probably like coping strategies by their writer-directors. <laughs> You know, you're working through some kind of problem, especially as like British people. Usually it's a problem that you haven't actually been able to say out loud yourself. I mean, always like Shaun of the Dead as an example, me and Simon always said was our like apology to previous girlfriends for being complacent and lazy boyfriends. So the Shaun of the Dead is sort of like an apology for being having been a bad boyfriend at times. I mean, I know for a fact that my ex-girlfriend watched it because she worked on it. <laughs> so I hope she appreciated the intent. It's like, sorry, I was... I was. I do think that, that um, you can see, like, with a lot of, like, horror films that people are working out their issues, whether they're conscious of it or not, you know? And that's something that's always interesting to me is that there are people who can psychoanalyze themselves or, obviously, like, Hitchcock has his preoccupation, so does Brian De Palma, so does David Cronenberg... And it's fascinating, and I think sort of sometimes those sometimes those filmmakers are criticised for returning to the same well. But it's it's obsession, you know, and it's obsession with like certain subject matter 
and uh, it's something that's maybe for them it's unsolvable, but like through like putting it onto the screen, it's like a form of therapy. I'm not sure where Reanimator fits into that, but uh, having interviewed Stuart Gordon, so see, he seems like he's a very quiet, soft-spoken man, and yet that is a crazy-ass film. So um, when you think of Reanimator, like, uh, where, where do you lodge that in the sort of a zombie film, in a way? Uh, Reanimator is a film that I do, I mean, I was always aware I liked that film, and I it's not one that I obsess about because I always felt I was watching a um, a cut version of the movie. Because I think in the UK, I think in the America, it was a, an X or even maybe unrated, unrated, an unrated movie. In the UK, it was an 18, but it was cut. And so I think still to this day, I'm not sure that I've ever seen the unrated version of Reanimator. And I was always aware that there were like, that there were controversial scenes and images that like I was not seeing. So I remember watching that movie and um, what's his name? Jeffrey, uh, what's the actor's name? Jeffrey. Combs? Jeffrey Combs, yeah. I really like Jeffrey Combs' performance. But it is a movie that I, I at the time, I, I was aware I was watching like a neutered version of it. Um, but I do enjoy it. I mean, that's a deliberately transgressive movie, too, I mean, avowedly by its makers. So is that built into horror's dynamic that it's meant to confront people, confront society, for instance? Horror films are provocative, and the best horror films and the ones that endure are because they deal with stuff that's transgressive or people are unspeakable acts. I think, in a way, you can actually... I think you can also reach a wider audience with a horror film than you could with dealing this, with the same themes in a drama. When we've written some of our films, we call them like Trojan horses because you can actually, you know, if we, if we dealt with like the dramatic elements of Shaun of the Dead or The World's End in like a relationship drama, we would maybe reach a 50th of the same audience. There might be a nice kind of like character drama, like something like The World's End, which is essentially a movie about alcoholism. We could, you know, make a, a drama and uh, maybe it would be good and uh, maybe some people would see it. But if you make it under the auspices of a, like a sci-fi invasion film, then you're going to reach a much wider audience. And so I think that's what some of the best genre filmmakers understand that, is that you can actually talk about things that are, you know, you can talk about serious issues, you can talk about sort of like personal issues, you can sort of talk about show images that are more transgressive. And under the auspices of genre, it actually is going to reach a wider audience. And I've always thought that, you know, because it's always a genre that until recently maybe like is dismissed somewhat. The fact that Get Out was a Best Picture nominee is obviously like a major step forward. That A horror movie is actually a major contender for Best Picture. But for a long, long time, like, horror films are sort of dismissed by the kind of loftier critics to some, in some respects. Well, not the loftier critics, but certainly by the kind of like the end of year, like awards love, like the people tend to forget about horror films or they're ghettoized in a way. But I think the thing is actually that there are themes within horror movies that are reaching a much wider audience than they would if they were in a normal drama. The best of the horror filmmakers are able to show like sort of more transgressive imagery and it be seen by a mainstream audience than if it was in a different genre. Um, I know there's a know some controversy about whether or not silence of the lambs is a horror film but we're considering it a horror film actually i would i would agree that silence of the lambs is a horror film because if psycho is a horror film then so is silence of the lambs there is i mean i guess what people start to draw lines about horror is whether there's a supernatural element or not or whether something that's fantastical but there are plenty of horror you know there's nothing supernatural in psycho 
it could really happen. It's based on a real story. You know, many consider it to be the greatest horror film of all time. So by that criteria alone, Silence of the Lambs is also a horror movie and a fantastic one. And also I think what's interesting is that if you compare it to, say, Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is also a really great movie based on Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, you know, Michael Mann's vision in Manhunter is a much kind of like more like modern, like even just Lecter's cell. It's this like sort of, you know, white, almost like art gallery looking sort of building. Jonathan Demme on the flip side in Light Sons of the Lambs, he goes full gothic horror. The Asylum and Lecter's kind of like cell is like something out of a Hammer horror film and seemingly by design. And also by the fact that like Jonathan Demme casts George Romero and Roger Corman within the movie, I mean, tells you that like he's kind of not ashamed of any horror roots in that movie. I mean, I think that movie is also, in a similar way to Jaws, it's one of those movies that as an engine for suspense and as a pure audience crowd pleaser, it's superlative. I vividly remember seeing Science of the Lambs with an audience several times. And the first time, you know, when some of those twists comes, when Lecter's wearing the face and he's on the gurney, like the audience freaking out. And then going to see it a second time, uh, waiting for that bit, knowing that there's another audience that don't know that bit's coming. And so I, I saw that film multiple times at the cinema because the euphoria you got from watching those twists unfold in front of an audience was extraordinary. So I would definitely consider that a classic horror film. And if, if that's the case, then one of the few horror films to have won Best Picture. Essentially, in Silence of the Lambs, you have a first-rate, extremely first-rate cast. And, yeah. And how much, it's an obvious point, but nonetheless, it seems to be a rare thing that you are able to get extremely high-end actors in a, uh, a film made with that kind of craftsmanship, which leads me into Don't Look Now. A, a lot of, like, sort of horror movies that are through the ages that people have started to sort of dismiss as B-movies, and part of that is because of the level of the acting talent sometimes. Um, you do obviously get incredible performances in horror movies. I think then there's a phase where you had uh, like horror movies that are like, attracting like different level of director, and they're also casting like a superior class of actor. And in the 70s, you got The Exorcist, which is like a film where you suddenly have Ellen Burstyn and Max von Sydow anchoring this fantastical horror tale their casting makes it into like a much bigger movie than that like so William Freakin's kind of staging of it and all of those actors including Jason Miller and Linda Blair it just elevates the entire movie later in the 70s you had Carrie which you know people forget had like two Academy Award nominations Piper Laurie and Cece Spacek are both nominated for that movie as they should because they're both incredible performances and I think and then obviously like, and Don't Look Now is another example where you have Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie two like amazing actors at the time starring in a essentially a ghost story just their very presence and also Nicholas Rogue behind the camera is elevating that into something that seems beyond horror but can perfectly fit in the horror section of blockbusters, not that blockbusters exist anymore. R.I.P. blockbusters. <laughs> well, Don't Look Now, as you mentioned, it's a ghost story, even if there doesn't even turn out to be a you know literal ghost, it's nonetheless a movie in which the couple are haunted. Yeah. Maybe if you could talk a little about that and how Rogue sort of expresses that incredible sadness throughout that film. 
Deadly Now is a film that um, I watched it when I was pretty young. I'm probably too young to completely understand it, but it really like stayed with me. It's a very harrowing movie, and it opens with a sequence which is of Donald Sutherland finding his recently drowned daughter. That sequence kind of like ends with such an unforgettable image of Sutherland grieving over his daughter who was just drowned. And if you think of any image from the movie, that's probably the first image that you think of is him kind of cradling his dead daughter with his like really primal groan of like grief. And that's just the setup for the movie. Because um, what's really great about the opening sequence, though, is that you basically, he gives away the twist and the key to the entire movie in the opening sequence. I don't want to ruin this for people who haven't seen this movie, but you get the sense in the opening sequence that Donald Sutherland, even if he doesn't know himself, has second sight. He has kind of psychic powers and he can see something that's kind of happening. So he has, this pre- he has a, a premonition of his daughter dying even as it's kind of happening. And this then plays out in a very, like, surprising way through the rest of the movie. So it's based on a Daphne du Maurier short story. It's a movie that sort of exists in this kind of state of, like, dream logic throughout because you have characters that are are seeing premonitions that you don't realise are seeing premonitions and it's confusing the timeline in their own head of what's happening. And you're also meeting a character who is envisaging something... He's projecting into something else what he wants to see. And what he wants to see is the idea that his daughter is alive. And he's sadly about to get a very rude awakening. I can't even, I can't even ruin it for people who haven't seen it, but what is one of the greatest twist endings of all time? It is, is an extraordinary film just in terms of... It doesn't really feel like sort of horror films that have come before it, and I think a very influential film. It's all pretty much shot on location, and that feels extremely vivid. And it feels very real. It also, much like Nicholas Rogue's other work, it's so beautifully shot and brilliantly edited. The editing in Don't Look Now is quite extraordinary, especially in the opening and closing sequences, where the idea of time and the past and the present and the future are all running into each other, and the idea of events of the past being omens for the present and rhyming actions, even as a character is dying and their life is flashing before their eyes, things that are happening in the present are rhyming with things that happened months before. I find it like a really profound movie because it makes me think about how interconnected everything in your life is and this almost butterfly effect of different sounds and actions and choices that will kind of continue to recur and recur in your life and how even in the sort of the ending, like a sort of a very grim denouement to the movie, there's some kind of like order in life that there's some kind of sort of, seems like some kind of um, cosmic rhyming of events. And I find it a really, like, sort of powerful movie. Uh, it, it really, really stays with me. The use of time, the way it crunches it all together and tried to show this sort of Einsteinian view of time and space, essentially, uh, is something I think you can only really do in the medium of film. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Nicholas Rogue is like a master of cross-cutting. The opening sequence of Walkabout is an incredible, like, sort of short film in itself. And, and then Don't Look Now is, I think, his next movie. The opening of that is just a, a masterclass of, like, cross-cutting. But like I said, he's, you know, he's, he's using it to sort of establish some sense that the events 
I don't know. I guess it's almost like a sort of linear timeline. The, no, or non-linear time. Non yeah, it's all like block universe time, basically. Yeah, it's something that I think it's it's. What's great about it is it's not like sort of like based on any kind of idea of science, other than the belief that something that is happening in like another location is affecting what's happening to you right now. I, I find it sort of like very affecting, and then when it gets into the sort of the finale and the idea that like interconnected images. It almost is like an, a very like sort of powerful explanation for deja vu when you get deja vu, which is you know signals from your brain like bouncing from back amongst themselves, so they're getting sort of something bouncing back in the mirror, thinking, oh, I think I've been there before. And Dunling now it has a sort of like a, almost like a sort of a, a sick sort of nasty shaggy dog ending in a way, but it's one that like still it doesn't feel like a trick on the audience. It feels like an unfortunate event because like somebody wants to believe so much that their daughter is still alive, or even that they're still present in some afterlife, that you'll get led down a very dark alley to a very nasty end. But so it's something like it's, it's one of the like sort of the cruelest kind of endings in film. But I still find it strangely like sort of profound because you know you want to believe that there's. I, I mean, I'm not like I don't believe in. I'm not a religious person, but I do. I want to sort of believe in some form of the afterlife or even the idea of echoes. And that's something that Don't Look Now does brilliantly is the idea that like life keeps echoing. And those like sort of rhymes, visual and verbal and audio, will just keep coming around. So there's sort of seems like there's some kind of like there is some rhyme and reason to events in your life. When you think of other ghost stories, so we've got good ghost story movies. What comes to mind? Do you have any particular favorites? Favorite ghost story movies? I mean, off the top of my head, I really like the others. Oh no, sorry, not the others. Sorry, I'm thinking of the other one. I really like the Innocence. Jack Clayton's *The Innocence*, uh, which is an adaptation of *Turn of the Screw*, I think that is a really great ghost story. Beautifully shot, you know, brilliantly directed. I mean, it came around around the same time as *The Haunting* by Robert Weiss, which is another really good one. So those are movies that I, I really love. I, I mean, I like the sort of um, I like that genre generally. Even some of the kind of more sensationalistic ones like The Legend of Hell House, which is a, is a trashier version of The Innocence and The Haunting, but no less entertaining. <laughs> so I like movies which have some... I like sort of supernatural movies. I'm trying to think of some other ones that really, like, speak to me. Rattle some off, and I'll... I'll, I'll if any of that. From the early stage, yeah, there's The Haunting, of course, and um, see The Uninvited. I know, I'm not sure I've ever seen The Uninvited, actually. That's on Criterion. It's actually, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's also sort of a comic horror, but it's mostly horror, but then it has just super dry sense of humor that goes. Oh, right. I haven't seen that one. I should. Well, there's Poltergeist. Oh, okay. I can talk about that. <laughs> Poltergeist is a really fascinating one for me because I think it's not as kind of like rigid in its, in any kind of science, like, you know, something like The Haunting or The Innocence. It is much more of like a roller coaster in terms of, you know, there's, there's less rhyme or reason to the kind of the, the events in that movie in terms of it starts with the poltergeist and then it kind of gets into anything. No guy imagining that he's peeling his face off, a tree fully coming alive, a clown fully coming alive. However, even though it kind of like plays fast and loose with the, any idea of like horror physics, 
that film is like a real thrill ride. I think it's like a genuinely like great movie. And what's interesting about it is obviously because there's some kind of question over the genesis of it about how much did Toby Hooper direct, how much did Spielberg direct. But really, whatever the truth of that is, and you don't want to like take away from either filmmaker, the end result is fantastic. It actually, for a film that has any kind of like question over its kind of production, it's an extremely well-tooled movie. One of the things I love about Poltergeist is how it just starts, it gets straight into it within the first scene, Carol Ann is touching the TV and speaking to the people in the TV. What I love about that is it, is it goes beyond the idea of what a poltergeist could actually do, but it's so imaginative in its imagery. Like, just the idea of the people in the TV that live in the static is such a strong and haunting and spooky idea, because it's also something that, like, I grew up with that as, like, what the TV would do when you left it on and that sort of um, reassuring shh noise at the end of the night. Something that, like, kids today don't know what that is. And I'm sure for the Poltergeist remake, kind of a problem that you don't really have the white noise on TV anymore. (laughs) I think that that movie is, like, even though it sometimes feels like you're watching, like, the... um, Universal Horror Nights uh, version of a, like a horror film. It is like a roller coaster. It is extraordinarily effective. I think I can imagine that if you were like, as I saw it, I must have seen it when I was 11 or, you know, 10 or 11. I just thought it was the greatest movie. And I watched it again recently and it really holds up. Another thing that's great about Poltergeist is practical effects brilliant practical effects and and also all sorts of different effects opticals you know force perspective sets like amazing like sort of camera like moves like that great kind of like contra zoom when joe beth williams is running down the corridor brilliant makeup effects animatronics puppetry you know richard edlin's like light show effects it's incredible like there's sort of the it is an extraordinary movie in terms of they do throw everything in including the kitchen sink but it totally works and then also even on top of those effects there's also the kind of uh, like moments where as soon as you have it on vhs is like rewind that let's see how they did that like that amazing shot where joe beth williams is walking across the kitchen and the chairs change in the shot and you know that like on the set is that they obviously had all the chairs glued together and they took all the chairs out and they lowered the stack of chairs so it would all work in like a sort of continuous shot it's great it's like that movie is like i think whatever the real story of who actually made it it doesn't detract from the fact it's a brilliant piece of work i've always like sort of looked at that movie and thought how do you do that again where you actually sort of like it's like taking sort of almost like decades of horror filmmaking and constructing it into like this pure roller coaster, which really works. And there's lots of elements of that movie that really stay with you. In a way, it's like the ultimate kind of like 80s Amblin movie, you know. I mean, maybe it isn't an Amblin movie. It's probably just before they did Amblin, but like sort of, it's definitely a Steven Spielberg production, but it's a great piece of work. I really love it. Well, some others would be uh, The Sixth Sense. Yeah. The Sixth Sense, I think, is a brilliantly done movie. And I think because the twist became so famous, it's a movie that's easy to sort of parody. And it's a movie that, because uh, everybody knows the twist and everybody like talks about the twist, it's easy to forget what a huge impact that movie had when it was first in release. 
I was lucky enough, I was in the States when it came out, so I saw it opening weekend, and I, along with many other people, had no idea that the ending was coming. And I remember vividly walking out of the multiplex screen and seeing other people in the lobby, like, looking around in a sort of state of shock because they'd been brilliantly deceived. And they wanted to go and see it again because they sort of wanted to see whether the, the filmmaker cheated. But he doesn't cheat. The brilliance of that movie is that it never cheats. And then it makes scenes which um, you have to kind of question, think about it, thinking, well, didn't Bruce Willis and Olivia Williams have dinner? Ah, but she never spoke to him. Like, he was late, and she's, like, mad at him, and she's talking to herself. It's a brilliantly constructed movie. And, and also it has that great fake-out where you have this other story that you assume is the actual, like, oh, this must be what the movie's about, the, the whole, like, episode with the the dying kid and that seems like oh that's the end of the movie and no there's another like you know it's a brilliant card trick it's really really well made movie and I think it's worth revisiting it almost became too famous it was such a big hit that it's easy to make fun of and spoil the ending etc etc but it's like a brilliantly thought out rigorously like executed movie yeah, brilliantly acted. Well, what's, I mean, what's interesting about something like The Sixth Sense is that M. Night Shyamalan, you know, he has the confidence to pull in an audience with atmosphere alone. A film like Poltergeist, which I love, it's operating on such a sort of amazing fever pitch for the whole movie. The other movies in its wake, sort of 80s and 90s movies, like horror films, are sort of trying to top that and going bigger and crazier. And what's great is that when somebody like sort of M. Night comes along with The Sixth Sense, he has the confidence to kind of like sort of slow it down and make it intimate and make it about the performances and make you completely invest in the premise and then like score major likes and it pays huge dividends in terms of actually like really scaring people because they've invested in the premise and the actors. Did you see Mama? I did, yeah. Did you think Mama? So it was a ghost movie. I must get that one. I can't remember too much about it other than I like Jessica Chastain's haircut. <laughs> But I did. I remember liking it. I'm, I'm not, I couldn't answer like 20 questions on it. And um, also, one of your other good ghost movies, Devil's Backbone. Yeah, Devil's Backbone. I mean, I think so. Guillermo's um, like run of like smaller sort of personal films, uh, like Chronos, Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth are all like fantastic. And um, I think he is another director that his passion for the subject matter and his reverence for the characters and also his love of the monsters themselves and his affinity for them and his sympathy for the monsters is always like palpable in his work. And it's actually, I, I think I watched after The Devil's Backbone, I'd heard uh, Guillermo talk about the spirit of the beehive a lot and I watched that and um, thoroughly enjoyed that movie, which again isn't really sort of a horror film, but sort of not... I could see that that obviously was a film that like, meant a lot to him growing up. I love his movies, and I think what Guillermo did around that time, and it had an influence on later filmmakers, you can see Guillermo's influence as a producer in The Orphanage, which is also like brilliantly done, Ghost Story. And Guillermo produced Mama as well, didn't he? Yeah. So I think that's always interesting that sort of, you know, what Guillermo did in that sort of period where, you know, a lot of other horror films at that time are pretty like schlocky and sort of C grade is actually sort of brought some class back to the genre in terms of the level of filmmaking. 
and the real passion for the genre. You know, Guillermo is a great storyteller. I think if he wasn't a director, he, he'd be an amazing novelist, I'm sure. I mean, he has written books, but I'm sure if he couldn't direct or hadn't directed, he would be one of our great horror novelists. Speaking of sympathy for the monster, if you could say a few words about The Shape of Water, for instance, and what made that film connect with people the way it did, do you think? Well, I think, I don't think Shape of Water does, um, where it is a horror film is like Michael Shannon is the monster in the movie. That's the great thing about The Shape of Water is that the, the fish man or the monster or whatever they call it, the creature, has no horror element because he poses no threat to Sally Hawkins and he's only defending himself at any point where he attacks somebody. Apart from that cat, the cat didn't deserve it. But in terms of the humans, he's defending himself because they're, like, torturing him with an electric cattle prod. So I think the great thing in that movie is Guillermo's ultimate statement is, like, man is the monster. The fish man is, like, the sort of the saint, and Michael Shannon is the monster. And I like that. It's a good, like, sort of visual theme throughout it is that, you know, Michael Shannon, as the FBI agent, literally starts rotting in front of our eyes. His fingers start falling off. He's, like, having sex with his wife and bleeding all over her. You know, so he's the, obviously the villain of the piece, but he's the monster. I like that aspect. And I need to ask you about a couple of vampire films. We'll start at the end, or towards the end, which would be with Let the Right One In. Yeah, I love Let the Right One In. It's a really, like, memorable movie. I think something that um, is interesting in that movie is that it's so beautifully cast. When I think about that in comparison to the remake, which is also a really well-made movie, I think the casting of um, the kids in the original movie is a really key aspect to the success of it, especially in terms of the question mark over the sort of the sex of the vampire itself and the androgyny about it and that kind of as a fascinating part of the movie. And you only get little glimpses of it and it's very tastefully done because it doesn't kind of like hammer that aspect home but it makes it an, an incredibly enigmatic movie. It's, again, uh, like a movie that transcends its genre because you can't... It's so beautifully made and beautifully performed, and even just the setting, like the Scandinavian settings, are so picturesque, even in their bleakness. You know, frequently you have foreign filmmakers, uh, foreign-language filmmakers, who remind you of, like, the power of horror. Guillermo was like that, and Thomas Alverton did that with Let the Right One In. Whereas in the American multiplexes, no disrespect to kind of like paranormal activity or like some of the, you know, they're, like, they're fun movies, but they're on the kind of, they sort of reach a sort of level of like pushing buttons with an audience. And then another film comes along like Guillermo's work or like Let the Right One In, where it reminds you of like how classy a horror film could be. You know, Let the Right One In and Devil's Backbone have much more in common with Jack Clayton's The Innocents than they do with maybe like your current multiplex kind of horror. Another vampire film that I really love that not enough people talk about is a 70s movie called The Daughters of Darkness. Have you ever seen that movie? Yep. I love that movie. And, like, it's something that I, um, I'd read about it. I think maybe it's in cult movies, Danny Peary's book, but I hadn't seen it until recently. And it is, any, any movie that's in Danny Peary's book, when it kind of shows up or there's a Blu-ray or it's showing somewhere, it's like, i got to see it. I finally saw Daughters of Darkness, and that movie is one that um, deserves to be better known in, in this day and age because it's, it's really funny, it's sexy. The locations are, like, incredibly memorable and iconic. It takes place in a seaside resort in... Uh, where is it? Is it in Belgium? It's in Belgium, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, is, that, is, that is a great kind of vampire movie. 
How would you sum up the plot of that film? Uh, I try to, I've only seen it once, so I'm going to do a really bad job of this, so you probably have to cut somebody else. <laughs> but, um, it's uh, a young couple is staying in like a seaside resort out of season, and then another couple, an older woman and her like female companion, is that right, come to stay? And then it sort of becomes clear that they want to kind of maybe um, engage in some swinging, but then it becomes a little more sinister. That it becomes very clear that what the older lady is perhaps 800 years old and is actually a vampire. I just remember, like, I saw that movie and it was one of those great experiences where a movie that you've read about for years and years and years and heard good things about, sometimes you watch those cult movies and it's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good, but it's dated now. And Doors of Darkness is one of those movies where it, it surpassed what I thought it was going to be. It was beautifully shot, beautifully performed, funny, sexy, kinky, scary... I think I probably saw, like, Daughters of Darkness around the time that, like, Twilight was in vogue, which is about as, no disrespect, as bland and vanilla as vampires and werewolves get. And then I saw Daughters of Darkness and said, oh, this is what vampires should be. Vampires have to be sexy and have to be transgressive. And there has to be something kind of like, you know, I think vampires generally represent a fear of, like, sort of, like, unknown sexuality and an intrigue into unknown sexuality. You know, I think that's a huge part of it. It's why sort of like vampires, it's why Christopher Lee is like, to, to my mind, Christopher Lee is the greatest Dracula because he's incredibly seductive. And you feel that any like man or woman would like sort of turn for Christopher Lee <laughs> like when he's in his Dracula makeup. So um, that's the thing I always find is like sort of, it's, it's, the sexuality is such a huge part of like vampire movies in a way that it isn't in other genres. Like, it's not really the same thing with a werewolf movie or zombie movies, but, like, vampires are about sex. And so the best of them are, like, sort of sexy and scary. Do you have, like, a, a favorite uh, style? You you like the more ferocious or more romantic or something? I, like, I, I definitely like the more romantic vampires. I think I can... The more ferocious ones are kind of interesting, you know, like, you know, but they're, they're, to me, like, they're getting into sort of zombie territory sometimes. I mean, Near Dark is a fantastic movie, but even those uh, vampires, I think, are kind of strangely sexy. (laughs) So even though they're about as grungy as it gets, the grungiest kind of, like, sort of drifter, like, sort of dusty, like, weather-beaten, but they still are, like, sort of have that kind of, like, a sexy thrill about them. I mean, to my mind, like, sort of the best vampires are, like, sort of have some kind of romantic allure or, like, sexual intrigue. I rewatched Hammer's Horror of Dracula recently. It's extraordinary, like, what power just, like, a close-up shot of Christopher Lee standing there saying nothing or seeing Christopher Lee at the top of the stairs and seeing his effect on, like, the men and the women in the, in the room. He, to me, that's my Dracula. Like, I mean, other people have done a, like, a, you know, great job, but, like, sort of Christopher Lee, for me, is Dracula. What do you think is the appeal of horror, horror the horror genre to people? So what attracts them to it, whether they like it or not? Or what also what makes, is it the same thing that also makes it seem disreputable in some circles? I think it's because, I mean, horror... I think touches so many people because it is cathartic. It's like an entertaining way of dealing with your fears and anxieties. So things that are like might be deep-seated worries for you or just for the filmmaker, but it's a way of showing that on a screen and dealing with it in an entertaining way. 
It's more fun than dealing with it in real life. It's more fun than dealing with it in therapy. It's a cathartic experience to watch a horror movie. It's better to be scared in a movie theater than to be scared in real life. You know, it's why people return to it again and again is because it's a thrill to be scared and it's for the most part a controlled environment <laughs> unless you've got a deeply disturbed director of which there are some um, so, but I think it's something that uh, it gives people nightmares but it also solves people's nightmares people can like be sort of cured by horror films it's something that they are like sort of hang anxiety about a lot of horror movies are people working out their problems on screen and some movies are about people dealing with their problems you know some some movies that end in very ambiguous ways that are like sort of will gnaw at you and like sort of be terrifying like a movie like the vanishing which ends in the worst possible way it could the original version you know but there are other movies where the monster is vanquished it's a, a cathartic euphoric experience your major anxiety has gone away because the monster has been defeated like at the end of pretty much every dracula film dracula is dead He obviously is going to come back for another one, but at the end of the movie, the nightmare is over and you can sleep at night because Dracula is back in the grave again. Are horror films fundamentally conservative then because they sort of restore the status quo, or is that, is that changed, do you think? I think that was probably... The idea of horror films being conservative is probably something back in the day where there was a more strict code in probably the 30s, 40s, 50s, early 60s there's an idea that the the monster has to be vanquished and the problem has to be vanquished and everything goes back to normal there's happy endings but then you know night of the living dead is the start of a more ambiguous phase where it's like night of the living dead does not end on any kind of triumph your hero is shot by police it's the most upsetting ending in cinema And then that has continued through horror cinema that actually it doesn't always have a happy ending. It could end with the, on the most ambiguous note. It could end on the bleakest note. It could end on the note that gives you worse nightmares than the film you've just been watching for two hours. But I think that's the joy of horror cinema is that it can like, affect you in lots of different ways. Does that free you up as a creator, knowing that you can end it... And you, you, know, you don't have to have the boy and girl or whoever? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, like, um, you know, what you're always just looking for is a memorable ending. And I think in horror fiction, as long as it's a memorable ending or something that's unexpected, Rosemary's Baby has one of the great endings because essentially it's a very bleak ending. She's given birth to the devil. However, she still can't stop being a mother. <laughs> so it's like, it's both the sort of, the ending you want to see is that she gave, she gave birth to like a demonic child, but her maternal instincts can't help kicking in and it ends with her kind of like, like hushing the baby and looking after it. So I think sort of like, that's the great thing about the genre is that you can like sort of a, a happy ending, a sad ending, an ambiguous ending. As long as it's memorable and it sticks with you, that's the important thing. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial-free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's hand-picked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUTTERPOD. That's promo code 
S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams, who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>